So how I word my feedback actually matters. And I need to think about what I'm saying so that I get the least amount of defensiveness possible. Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Egnall, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. Our guest on today's episode of the Inspire podcast is Dane Jensen. Dane is the CEO of Performance Coaching. And Performance Coaching really draws on expertise from coaching athletes in the Olympics to realize their potential and applies it to business. As their CEO, he advises CEOs and senior leaders in sport and business on strategy, leadership, and how to excel in high-pressure situations. I brought Dane on to talk about coaching. Coaching is not capital C coaching. In other words, you don't have to be coaching a sports team, but really how you can help others understand what it's going to take to perform at a high level and how you can build the kind of lasting relationship that allows you to help them realize their potential. We tackle what it takes to establish such a relationship, why coaching isn't just about asking questions, it's also about giving direction, what to do when someone is not performing, and how you can give people feedback in a way that will cause results. Enjoy my conversation with Dane. So my guest today on the Inspired Podcast is Dane Jensen. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So what does performance coaching do? <laughs> so, you know, performance coaching was founded about 30 years ago as a partnership uh, between my parents, actually. And, you know, my father, Dr. Peter Jensen, is a sports psychologist, and my mother's a clinical psychologist. And they were really working at that time predominantly with elite-level athletes, uh, in particular Olympic uh, athletes. And, uh, you know, with a background in sports psychology in kind of the mid-'80s, sports psychology was almost this sort of dark art. Um, you know, people didn't really know what it was. He actually got a phys ed degree. It wasn't even part of the psychology department. Uh, but they went to the Calgary Games and, and uh, were working with the figure skaters who went to those games, which were Brian Orser and Elizabeth Manley and Tracy and Rob, and, you know, a wonderful class of figure skaters, a lot of pressure, a lot of attention. There was the Battle of the Bryans and all that kind of stuff. And uh, Canada actually didn't do that well at the Calgary Games. We only won uh, uh, four medals. And in fact, we became the first country uh, that had ever hosted an Olympic Games and not won a gold medal (laughs) on home soil. And actually, Calgary was the second time we did that. We did it in Montreal as well. So we had that dubious honor uh, two times in a row. Uh, but it turned out that four of the, uh, uh, the athletes that won medals at that Games had been working with Peter and Sandra. And so when, when they got back from the Games, people were kind of interested. What, what are you doing to help these people perform under the immense pressure of competition? And so our business was kind of founded on the rock of, hey, you know, we can probably learn a lot of stuff from watching people who are performing in extreme environments like the Olympic Games about what does it take a as an individual to perform under pressure, but then what can we learn from these exceptional coaches that are supporting these people in performing under pressure? And so we've you know, spent the last almost 30 years kind of bringing those ideas and tools of exceptional coaches, athletes, and, and innovators across sport and business to uh, the world of, of business, basically. 
And now you're not a sports psychologist yourself, are you? I am absolutely not. So, you know, you know, I always joke, we're a big cross-pollination factory. Uh, you know, we take ideas from sport, from business, from government, from philanthropy. We smash them all together and we try to figure out what works across all those different areas. And, and to make that model work, we need people to come from each of those areas. So we do hire a lot of people that come out of sport. I think we have four people on the team now that have graduate degrees in sports psychology. Uh, but we also need the boring people that come from business and actually understand, you know, okay, what's the stuff that's going to apply in business? Because, you know, one of the things that actually bothers me a little bit is people that come out of the world of sport and they go, well, I did this to win an Olympic medal and so you should do this too. And it's like, well, if I'm a middle manager at one of the big six banks, uh, you know, my life is actually very different than somebody who is trying to win an Olympic gold medal. So, so yeah, my background is strategy consulting. I worked at a company called The Monitor Group and uh, came back about seven years ago and took over the business. And today, I know performance coaching, well, we've kind of co-delivered programs as yeah. Humphrey Group and performance coaching. Uh, and I know that the topic, one of the areas of expertise that you've built and have become renowned for is coaching. Yes. How to coach, because now people want to know small c coaching they're not going to become coaches of teams yep. you know of sports teams but the ability to coach people to achieve high performance i believe is an increasingly important skill yep. is that is that how you see it as well today in the business world and in the world of work yeah absolutely i you know I think you'd be hard-pressed to find an organization that doesn't want their managers to think of themselves as coaches. Uh, and I think that's, you know, for a number of reasons. The first, of course, is that it's hard as hell to, you know, recruit and find exceptional talent. And as Steve Jobs said 30 years ago, you know, the goal is not to hire smart people and tell them what to do. The goal is to hire smart people so they can tell us what to do. And so if you're taking a very top-down, traditional, hierarchical approach to management, you're not going to get the best out of your people. You're not going to get the bang for your buck from getting and bringing in all this incredible talent. And, and I think the other thing is just straight engagement, you know, and retention, which is if you look at not just the stuff that millennials want and younger folks want, although absolutely they want to be coached and they want their work to be a growth, you know, producing environment. You know, the funny stuff about that research is when they went back and asked the same questions to Gen Xers and, and boomers, they're like, yeah, we want that stuff too. We just never really kind of, you know, stood up and fought for it. So I think this notion that work should be a vehicle through which I grow as a person and become better every day is both a really attractive part of an employee value proposition, but it's also the way that you unlock the potential of your talent. So yeah, I think it's vital. So, and that's why I wanted to have you on the podcast. So talk about, to demystify coaching and to really give practical direction on how to coach. So okay. first, uh, first big question I want you to answer, and it's a big question because I think there's so many ways to answer is, what is coaching? <laughs> yeah, so the, <laughs> this is obviously one of the big questions that we try to yeah. tackle. And we've only got 30 minutes yeah. for this interview. So. Right. Okay, <laughs> good point. Uh, so, you know, I, I think one of the myths around coaching is that you know, coaching is something where you have to book a conference room and you need 30 minutes and it's like, okay, I've got to do my weekly coaching session. And then as soon as we leave this room, it's back to managing, right? Like that's not our view of coaching. Coaching is for us ultimately not a tool. It's not a way of structuring your feedback. And we see that a lot. People go, well, coaching is you did this well, but next time I'd like to see more of this. It, you know, coaching for us is ultimately a way of looking at your job and looking at your role as it relates to your people. And, and, and Peter for 30 years has talked about this as, you know, coaching is approaching your job with a developmental bias. And what we mean by that phrase, developmental bias, is that as a leader, when I'm engaging with my people, I am biased to their development. So I look at my people as developmental projects, and I literally see it as part of my job 
to move my people from where they are to what I see as possible for them. And especially when we look at the elite coaches in sport, in the great coaches that we work with, they cannot help themselves. It's like they're wearing different glasses, as Peter would say. They, they, they look at people as athletes and they go, okay, you could be here, but you're here, and I have to help you move towards there. And so you know, that's really the mindset shift that I think all good coaches go through. And frankly, if you are approaching your job with a developmental bias, if you truly want what is best for your people and you see your job as helping move them towards their potential, I think you actually get a lot of leeway around the nuts and bolts of coaching. Like if your feedback isn't worded perfectly, if you're not asking exactly the right question, if people know that your heart's in you know, the right place and you're there for their growth and development, I think you're coaching. What is coaching not then? What might be some... <laughs> <laughs> what yeah. might be some mistaken assumptions about what coaching is so, that you would correct? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, so I think some mistaken assumptions about coaching. Uh, there's a lot of stuff out there with, you know, that would say coaching is all about asking really good questions. And I, I think a big part of coaching is asking really good questions. But, I, you know, we see a lot of times where, uh, you know, people will go on a coaching program and when they come back, their people all know that they've been on a coaching program because they're phrasing everything as a question. So they come into a meeting and it's like, oh crap, I'm supposed to ask questions. It's like, so how do you think that report went? And the person's like, yeah, pretty good. You're like, no, like, well, guess again. Like, how do you think that report went? And it's like, that's not coaching. So I think a lot of the times we see that people think coaching is only about asking deep questions, actively listening. You know, if you follow a great basketball coach around their basketball practice, and, and for those of you that don't know, listening at home, Bart was my basketball coach. In I don't high think great would be the word associated <laughs> with me as a 17 year old naive coach. <laughs> you know, you tolerated can, me. Let's, <laughs> we could debrief that yes. offline. But, you, know, uh, you know, if you follow, a basketball coach around a basketball practice, they're not watching the athletes and going like, well, how do you think that free throw was, <laughs> right? It's like, no, you put your arm six inches up. You do. So I think one of the myths around coaching is that coaching is just about helping people self-discover and kind of get to the answer themselves. Again, I'm not saying that's not a big part of coaching. That is a vital part of coaching. But a lot of times as a coach, you actually are doing it through feedback and even having very direct kind of challenging conversations with people. That is very different. I mean, when you, when Often, in fact, when I talk to clients about our approach to executive coaching, I'll say we are not like a traditional executive coach who won't tell you what to do. Right. We're skill development. Yes. And we're going to tell you, say it that way. Yeah. Use your hands that way. Yes. And people say, oh, yeah, that is very different from coaching. Right. So how have we gotten to this place where people think coaching is asking questions and not telling or giving direction? I think it's a bit of an outgrowth of a pendulum swing, which is, you know, I think in the early days of coaching, it was like, well, everybody was already telling everybody what to do. So we didn't really have to reinforce that, right? right? That, that skill right. was already pretty ingrained. We need to get people to shut up and ask a few right. questions. Exactly. Right. And, and so, you know, I think the pendulum kind of swung all the way to saying, like, what we really need to be doing. And, and still, listen, you know, whenever we get into our coaching programs, it, you know, we do a bunch of experiential exercises. And even after we tell people, you know, sometimes it's a bit, people do default a lot of the time to a telling style. So, you know, I don't want to leave your listeners with the impression that I'm saying, hey, good coaching is about telling people what to do. So keep on doing that. You know, we definitely want to ask questions, but I think it is a balance. And, and I share your, you know, one of my reservations in the field of executive coaching, which is a bit of a wild west. I mean, anybody can kind of throw their shingle up and say, hey, I'm an executive coach. I'm a life coach. Is I find that a lot of those coaches, the skill set that they have mastered is asking questions. But if you're a client sitting across the table and it's like, well, what do you think you should do? What are your champagne goals? Like, where do you want to be? And it's like, what the heck am I paying you, you know, $500 right. an hour? Like, at some right. point, like, 
give me, do you have any advice for yeah. me? Like, what Teach do you think me. I should do? Build my skills. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. I think this ability to move from a consulting style where you are asking and listening to a teaching style where you're actually helping somebody move up a learning curve. And, and ultimately, sometimes in a work environment, especially if you're, you know, uh, you have direct reports to a more of a confronting style, uh, you know, where you say, no, you don't do it like that, you do it like this, it, you know, is very important. So yeah. the best coaches have to be able to embody Absolutely. both. Absolutely, yeah. The, you know, they carry around a set of golf clubs and they take the right club out, you know, for the appropriate conversation. A couple more questions before we get into how to coach. Is everyone coachable? No. Uh, no, I don't, you know, I don't think everybody's coaching. Uh, sorry, I, I, I don't think everybody's coachable. What tells you that someone is not coachable? So the, the litmus test that we tend to use is if you see a behavior that is permanent, personal and pervasive, and this draws on the work of Martin Seligman, for those of you that have read option B, that, you know, this is also uh, his three kind of signals of a pessimistic explanatory style, but uh, you know, if a behavior is permanent, pervasive, and personal, typically that is not a coachable behavior. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's permanent, so you've had a chance to see this person over a pretty long period of time and their behavior has not changed, it hasn't evolved. It's pervasive, which means it's not just with you, it's with other people in the organization, it's, you know, at home with their kids, Kids, with their family, and it's personal, which ultimately means this is not, you know, they do it one way because that's their style. It's like a personality thing. For us, that means that, you know, they're probably bringing a life issue into the office, and it's very hard, and, you know, especially if we're talking about managers here, for people to kind of coach people through that stuff if it's personal, permanent, and pervasive. And I, you know, I think one of the things that we, we try to balance when we're talking to coaches is I think a lot of people who are exceptional managers and very well-meaning as coaches, they almost hold themselves to an impossible standard of saying, hey, I've got seven people on my team. I need to, you know, if I'm going to coach Bob, I got to coach Janine and Rick and Liz. And, you know, and the reality is you're going to get more bang from your buck coaching some people than you are coaching other people. And so, you know, we're always thinking about how do you allocate your coaching time? Hmm. And can everyone become a coach? Or, an, or maybe a better way of asking is, can everyone build this capability to be a coach? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone can become a coach for sure. I think like anything in life, you know, there are certain people that are naturally more um, aligned with and, 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 you know, you know, my belief in this stuff is it, it's how much energy do you want to spend? So there are people that can effortlessly coach because they just look at people naturally as developmental projects. They're very good at building relationships with people. They can't help themselves from wanting to see another person improve. They like nothing better than seeing another person reach a new personal best or a new high. And, you know, coaching comes very easy to them. Uh, you know, if you are somebody who isn't that way, you know, is much more kind of intellectually competitive, maybe a little bit more introverted, you get much more satisfaction from the accomplishment of tricky, you know, uh, intellectual tasks. Yes, you can become a good coach, but it's probably going to take a lot more out of you. Like it's going to sap your energy a lot more because you don't get the intrinsic satisfaction of the win, so to speak, of seeing another person improve. Hmm. So, okay, so let's turn to, so what I'm taking away, coaching, developmental bias, it is a skill you have to build the capability yep. and invest your time with the right people. Yes. So let's now shift to how you actually do it. Yep. How do you coach? <laughs> here, so, we go. here we go. Here we go. Here we go. your entire court program. I've got a big swallow of water here. I'm yeah. ready. I'm ready to go. Um, so 
you know, for us, ultimately, we want to start with the end in mind, right? It's like, okay, if, if, if I'm going to get into how do I coach, I got to know what am I trying to do in the first place. And our belief is ultimately when we are coaching another human being, our goal is to, you know, both help them deliver results, which is obviously why we get paid. It's why we have jobs. You know, people have to do what they're supposed to do day in and day out. But of course, there are a whole bunch of different ways to get results, right? We can use bonuses to get results. We can use standard operating procedures to get results. We can use fear to get results. We can use hierarchy to get results. Mm-hmm. The challenge is that a lot of those different approaches to getting results, so to speak, have a very short half-life. Mm-hmm. And so for us, this drive to results as a coach has to be paired with building commitment. And so that's our definition of, of you know, the outgrowth of good coaching, is you both deliver results and you build the commitment of your people. Hmm. And when you say deliver results, are you talking about your own results, or are you talking about the people whom you're coaching? The people whom you're coaching are able to stand and deliver against what they're, you know, what they're being asked to do. And in the process of delivering results, you are building their level of commitment. That is, they are more engaged, they are more excited, because that's your future indicator, right? Results are a lagging indicator. They show you what you did last month, last quarter. Commitment is your forward-looking indicator. What are we likely to do next month, next year, et cetera? So, and I know you guys did work with the uh, Olympic athletes who recently competed for Canada. Yes. Can you give me an example of an athlete where you started off and you established that kind of uh, working backwards and saying, these are the results we want and creating that commitment. Yeah, and I think this this actually gets into the, the how question, right? It is, you know, a lot of times with, um, you know, with Olympic level athletes, there's always that duality of we want to put the inspiring vision out there because that's where a lot of the resilience comes from and the motivation through the day-to-day crap is like I have worked deeply to build a resonant vision of three years from now, what is it going to feel like for you to be standing on the top of the podium, to have the national anthem playing, metal around your neck, flag going up behind you, everybody you've ever loved standing in front of you in tears, right? Like get feel that at a cellular level because that's where a lot of motivation is coming from. But the discipline of a coach is not to stand over an athlete every day in the gym going like, podium, 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 come on, let's go, right? Three years, three years, right? Because that's profoundly unmotivating and actually very irritating. So that's when you get into the nitty gritty of exceptional coaching, which is you got to take that vision and you've got to be unbelievably good at breaking that down into what are the small behaviors that you can exhibit on a day-to-day basis that are going to move you towards that vision. And so just to play out the sport analogy, you know, if I'm a sprinter and I'm going, well, I want to be third in Tokyo. Well, okay, here's the time that's going to be, we think, a bronze medal in Tokyo because all of this stuff is pretty mapped out, right? It's like, here's what it's probably going to take to finish third two years from now. Okay, well, you're here. You need to close a gap of about 0.5 seconds. Well, what that means, you need to get out of the blocks about, you know, 0.1, 0.08 seconds faster. To do that, you got to build fast switch muscle fiber in your big, you know, muscle groups. So today, we're going to do three sets of 10 at X weight in the gym. And that's where I focus, right? It's get the reps in this morning. And so, you know, to go back to your question of how do you coach, I think one of the most foundational coaching skills that we teach is as a coach, we have to be exceptionally good at building shared clarity with the person that we are coaching around what our performance goals are. Mm. Not our end goals, because generally organizations are quite good at end mm. goal. Not saying you don't need end goals, but usually we're pretty good at that, right? I'm sure you guys, for the Humphrey Group, you have a revenue target for this year, you have a profit target for this year, you have an employee engagement target for the, like, those are end goals, and most organizations are actually very good at setting up end goals. We're also very good at throwing parties when we hit our end goals, right. when we meet, our, you know. The job of a coach is to break those end goals down and say, hey, I want you and me to be super clear on what constitutes exceptional performance 
today, mm. this week, this month. And the organization is not going to recognize that. The organization is not going to throw a party if you do what you're supposed to do today. That's my job as a coach is to make sure that I'm actually giving you the skills to do that and then recognizing when you've done it along the way. So what I'm hearing is that coaches, people in organizations, may be mistaken if they think that having the end goal defined is sufficient. Yeah. They may overvalue the end goal yeah. of you know, delivering the project on time of hitting the revenue target, of hitting the sales target. Yeah. That's, that's almost a given, yes. much in the way that you're saying for an Olympian, yeah, I want to be on the podium. Yes. And then that's really just table stakes. Yes. But it's really the plan of how everyday performance and training gets you to that goal. Exactly. That you have to do the work of defining. Is it's that right? the behaviors, right? Mm. It's like getting getting so good that I know that that person knows what they are supposed to do, not just what we're trying to accomplish, which is an outcome, but what is the input? What is the, the, the behavior? So just as a, you know, a, a silly little example that we, we, we use in our programs, you know, if I go and take a golf lesson, you know, typically the first thing a new golf pro is going to say is, okay, hit a few balls. Like, let's see your swing. What am I working with here? Well, if I hit five balls and turn around and the golf pro goes like, well, I see the issue. Like, you got to hit it farther. Like, you know, get it out there. Like, 20 more yards, let's go. Right? Kind of useless. Yeah, it doesn't really help. Mm-hmm. But in organizations, that's often how, you know, we set, it's, it's like we need to be more productive. We need to be more collaborative. We really need to break down the silos. we got to be more customer-centric, right? We need to be more, you know, all of these terms. The outcome. Right, and they're all exactly the same. It's like we need to hit the ball farther. We need to hit the ball straighter. You know, a good golf pro, what are they going to do? They're going to break down your swing and they're going to say, well, if you want to hit it farther, like here's what you need to do with your grip. Here's what you need to do with your weight transfer. Uh, And I think that's what exceptional coaches and organizations do, which is it's great to have a sales target out there. Mm -hmm. And that's important because that shows people the goalpost. But if you hit people over the head every day with their sales target, it doesn't actually help them get there. It just pisses them off. So, you know, you got to be able to break it down to, you know, what would I see you doing on a daily basis if, you know, we were making effective progress towards those targets. So is that the really the beginning of coaching? You sit down with the person and you say, okay, we all agree on the, the outcome goal yep. in X period of time. Here is what I see as the behaviors that need to start happening. Is that the starting point for coaching? It is. And so, you know, for us to get to the results and commitment piece that I talked about, I think, you know, the virtuous cycle for us is, is what we talk about is clarity, competence, and recognition. It, it's so we start with clarity, then we build competence, then we provide recognition. And so where we just started you, is clarity. Okay. And so you can break those three down for me. Yeah. What is clarity? So clarity is exactly what we talked about. It's as, as an individual, as a coachee, I have clarity on, okay, what's the vision that I'm building towards that hopefully is motivating for me, whether that's a career path or, you know, monetary, I'm, you know, whatever the vision is for where I want to go. Then I am breaking it down so that I know that as a coach and the person that I am coaching, we have the exact same picture in our head of what constitutes high performance as regards, you know, as relates to that vision. And actually what we find is most people typically jump to the competence part. Um, So, you know, you have a new person on your team, you give them something to do, they go away, they bring it back, it's not done the way that you wanted it, you go, okay, this person is not competent. The reality is if you diagnose that 50% of the time or more, they just had a different picture in their head of what they were supposed to do because they did it differently at their last company or their last boss liked it a little bit differently or whatever. And so yes, clarity is that ability to break it down to the behavior so I know when that person walks away, we have exactly the same picture in our head of what the expectations are. 
And then, of course, you got to move to competence, right? Just because I have a clear picture in my head of what the expectations are. Don't necessarily are, do it. Right. I can't <laughs> right. necessarily execute on it. And so a lot of the meat of coaching is once I have set those expectations jointly with the coachee, then I have to obviously build the knowledge, the skill, and, and crucially, the confidence. You know, for us, a big part of competence is confidence because... I might have all the knowledge and skill in the world, but if I don't have the confidence to execute it, I don't have the knowledge and skill, uh, right? So, and that's really where, uh, you know, we start to think about when we're building competence, that is where we start to move the needle typically a little more to the teaching style of coaching, uh, which is this notion that I have to give people really effective and relevant feedback, both corrective and reinforcing, to help them move up a learning curve in a particular skill. Uh, right. So that's kind of the core skill. So that's there. where you should be more directive. Uh, you yeah. should say, hey, I saw you in this meeting behaving in this way. Yes. That had a negative impact on this audience. Correct. Instead, next time you go in that meeting, this is what you should do. 100%. And, and you nailed it, Bart. I mean, that's exactly it, right? It's, it's you know, the model that we often use is, is something called the BID, which is focus on the behavior, link it to impact, and then what do you do? BID. So, uh, you know, I think that, that whole notion of uh, feedback is just it's the lifeblood of effective coaching. And, and I think there's a lot of discussions right now around performance management and you know the, the so-called death of the annual performance review and how do we make performance management a process as opposed to an event. And my answer to that question is feedback. You know, If you have managers that are continuously delivering feedback, again, with that developmental bias, this is not feedback in service of like, do you know why you're in my office right now? Like kind of feedback. This is, I'm actually trying to help this other person get better. Uh, you know, then the performance reviews are not a surprise. It's, you know, you've been giving feedback all along the way. Right. And how do you, uh, when you look at giving feedback, because I think a lot of people struggle to give feedback, you know, or they avoid it. You know, yep. we hear far too often, Employees say, I get little to no feedback. Yeah, right. Uh, it's couched in you know, the hamburger model, right? You right. Know, yeah. Good, hard. <laughs> yeah. So it seems that people crave more feedback, but then you talk to managers and they say, when I give direct feedback, I get defensiveness, yeah. I get evasiveness. Yeah. Uh, and so I think both sides aren't getting what or doing what they need. Yeah. So break down for me what both sides should be doing in this building competence through feedback stage. Yeah, and I think you're, you know, you got a couple insights even in your question, which is it is a two-sided thing, right? I mean, both people have a role to play if feedback is going to have the impact that we want to have. You know, we need people that are open and willing to get better and, and receive well-intentioned feedback without getting defensive. And so I'll park that one for a second, focus more on the role of the coach, but I, I want to come back to this whole notion of being coachable and, and what does that actually mean, you know, as an individual. Um, so, you know, the first thing I would say is that... <laughs> When it comes to giving feedback as a manager, one of, the, one of my favorite studies of all time, which came out of the Gallup organization, was they, they wanted to try and understand, as it relates to feedback, what is it that leads to engagement or disengagement? You know, obviously, Gallup has tons of data on you know, engagement across a wide variety of organizations. And, and what they specifically were looking at was, you know, what percentage of employees become actively disengaged based on different management styles, in particular around giving feedback. And what they found was that managers that gave a balanced portfolio of reinforcing and corrective feedback, that is positive and corrective feedback, their folks had about a 1% chance of becoming actively disengaged. So very unlikely if you were giving somebody balanced regular feedback that they are going to become actively disengaged. 
On the complete other end of the, the continuum, what they found is that people who received no feedback from their managers, that is their managers just kind of ignored them, had about a 44% chance of becoming actively disengaged. Big, big gap. Here's the thing that's much more interesting is that they also looked at the people whose managers only gave them negative or corrective feedback. And they had about a 22% chance of being wow. excluded. It has. It's better. It's, it's better. better to give terrible feedback yeah. than no feedback. The worst thing you can do is, is not give people any information about how am I doing. Right? Benign neglect. Yeah, literally. And, and so, you know, the fastest way to move somebody down the commitment curve huh. or off of, is to ignore them. Remarkable. Uh, it's actually better to, even if, you know, you just give them negative or corrective. So that's the first thing is like, we need as, as leaders and as coaches, I think, to get over the hump a little bit of, you know, let's just give people information. And actually, you know, yes, it's uncomfortable. But so the, the thing that I kind of I, I want to hone in on in your question is the way that we deliver feedback has to be rooted in our goal for that feedback, which is ultimately our goal as a coach is to help somebody improve. And the fastest way that somebody is going to act on the feedback is if they don't have to get through a wall of resistance. And so a lot of the times, I think when we are asking coaches or leaders to really think about the wording of their feedback, we get some resistance from leaders with like, well, God, why do I have to do all this work? Like, right. can this person just like, you know, get take a bit, it. yeah, just take it, get a bit of a thicker skin. And for me, it's like coaching is about being a big person, right? It's about recognizing, well, okay, maybe they should be able to take it, but my goal ultimately is to help them move forward and get better and to, you know, improve performance. So how I word my feedback actually matters. And I need to think about what I'm saying so that I get the least amount of defensiveness possible. And how do you do that? Yeah, so a couple of things that, that we found in our experience. The first thing is actually, you know, embedded in your question, focus it on the behavior as opposed to your evaluation of the behavior. And what this means is if you're sitting in a client conversation and you're there to watch, you know, your person interact with a client and you see them interrupt that client and you start to get really frustrated because you're not hearing what you want to hear from the client, you know, the worst thing you can do from a feedback standpoint is get out of the meeting and say, man, you were really rude to that client in that meeting. That's not an observation, that's an interpretation. A judgment. Right? You've made a judgment based on a behavior. And, and that conversation is typically going to go through about five minutes of resistance before you actually get to the right. issue. Uh, that wasn't rude. Like, I, I was just being direct. That guy knows me. We know each other really well. You want to see rude? Like, I'll show you rude. Right. Like, you know, <laughs> I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about this guy's definition of rude versus my definition of rude. You know, focusing on the behavior is, you know, in the meeting, I noticed that you interrupted them three times before they finished speaking. Right? We can't disagree about that. That is an objective Fact. you know, description of reality. Uh, and I got frustrated. Well, can't again, disagree you can't with that. say, you know, right. you can't didn't get frustrated, right. right? So then what are we going to do about that? So, you know, this notion of I want to focus on the behavior as opposed to my interpretation of the behavior so that we have a solid fact base that we are, you know, jointly operating under. And by the way, this is why recency is so important to feedback because... You can't wait. Yeah, because you can disagree about what happened in a situation even 10 minutes later or 15 minutes later. If you do it kind of right in the moment, it's much easier to kind of get agreement on the facts, so to speak. And then, as you said, you, you need to link it to impact. And that impact might be just on your relation. You know, I felt really frustrated, I, you know, which again is a very valid impact that, you know, that you can speak right. to. Or it might be as simple as, you know, and we didn't get a chance to hear everything the client had to say. and We might have missed an opportunity for, right. you know, an additional, you know, sale. And then you switch to the, in the bid, behavior impact, what are you going to do about it? Then you would right. say, so next time when we go to the meeting, let them finish. Is that is that the kind of follow-on? Yeah. So we always want to be future focused, right? And that's the, that's the, the, the third piece to me is, a lot of times we get into these conversations around why did you interrupt the client? 
And it's like, okay, if you genuinely want to understand that as a coach, great, lead with that question. If ultimately you just want to give somebody some feedback that's like, don't interrupt right. the client, don't Do lead it. with that question because you're asking them to explore the past right. versus saying, here's what I want you to do. So for us, the do is always future focused. It's like, next time I want you to make sure you let the client finish before you ask the next question. Or you can actually, you know, that's where you can open it up as a question, you know, and it's probably not applicable for this scenario where it's pretty straight, you know, here's what I want you to do. But if, for example, you have somebody who comes and, you know, gives a big presentation and they present a whole bunch of problems without solutions, the do might be, you know, how do you think you might segue from problems to solutions in the next presentation, mm -hmm. right? It's still directive, but you're engaging the person to kind of say, all right, you know, right. how would you solve this the right. next so you're time saying you forward. need to solve it but I want you to take ownership of how you do that. Exactly. Right. So it can be directive, it can be more hmm. of a consultative approach. And I think you know that different people will respond differently to it. Some people yes. do need to be directed. Some people take ownership and say, oh, well, maybe I'll do this. So knowing yeah. your coachee, I'm sure, is important. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that applies both. You know, there, there, are, there are performers on our teams who, mm -hmm. uh, you know, are at a space in the learning curve where they just need a lot more directive feedback. You know, you get a brand new trainee on your team, and it's like, well, what do you think you should have done in that meeting? And it's like, I don't know. I, like, I just started. Like, I, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you Tell know, me. and then of course you've got a high performer who's been with you for 15 years, and you're going like, I need you not to interrupt people, and they're like, Are you kidding me? Like, right. I've been here for 20 years. Like, it, you know, so definitely there's that balance. Well, I think you look at great coaches in sport. I mean, I you know, NBA, right? You know, I look at Phil Jackson. He took over the Bulls. Jordan was already leading the league in scoring. Yeah. But they weren't winning because Jordan was selfish and he right. didn't appreciate others. And Jackson told them that you have to value people. And then he took over the Lakers. They had Kobe, they had Shaq, and they weren't winning. Yeah. And so to me, Jackson was such a great example of how he gave directive feedback to stars. Yeah. Not to the role players, but to the stars yeah. about how they need to adapt their behavior. Yeah, absolutely. To perform. And, and you know, Phil, Phil Jackson is a great example of what I would consider to be the best type of coach, which is the reason he was able to give that kind of feedback to Michael Jordan and to Kobe Bryant is, well, two things. First, they knew that this guy has no skin in the game other than winning basketball games. Like, he is not there because it's an ego trip for him or he's trying to win some power balance battle with them. It's like he, he's brought in to win, right? And so our incentives are very aligned. And, and, and what that means is that he was able to build a very solid relationship with those guys that was anchored around, I'm here to help us get better. So that, to me, is the developmental bias in action, right? It's like, I'm not here to prove myself. I'm here to help us win and help us get better. And so when you come at it with that developmental bias, you've already got one leg up. The second thing that Phil Jackson does, and, and this unites Phil Jackson with Mike Babcock and also with John Wooden, who is you know, the most legendary basketball coach of all time, uh, uh, college basketball coach down in the U.S., is ultimately they talk about their role as coaches as, I'm here to develop exceptional people who happen to be really good at basketball. Mm -hmm. And because they take that lens to their work, I think they get a lot of respect from the people that they coach because, again, the people understand that this person cares about me. They have a relationship with me that's about growing and developing me as a person. It, you know, we, wonderful. One of the best stories of all time in coaching is Coach Wooden, asked by a reporter late in his career. A reporter started to ask a question, said, "You know, Coach, I, I, I want to just tell you how wonderful I think you've been as a coach over the last 15 years." Before the guy could even ask his question, Coach Wooden said, "You know, I really appreciate the compliment, but..." 
The reality is I won't know how good a coach I've been until 20 years after my last player graduates and I see what they've gone on and done with their lives, right? Because 1% of the collegiate players are going to go to the NBA. It's like, what do the rest of them go on and do with their lives? And I think, you know, Phil, Mike Babcock, these are all examples of guys who when you listen to them talk about coaching or you read the books they've written about coaching, the first chapter is not about how do you organize the drills. The first chapter is about, you know, my philosophy. What do I think about developing people uh, uh, who happen to be exceptional athletes? So another coach who has won a lot, but who I would say is a very different style is Bill Belichick of the New England Patriots. I mean, Belichick, you know, to all external sources, cares nothing for people. <laughs> you know, just the opposite. It's a ruthless, you know, it's the Patriot way, yep. which involves getting rid of players as soon as they become problematic, too expensive. Yep. Uh, reading I've done suggests that the feedback inside is highly negative, yep. deeply critical, uh, aggressive even, yep. with little emotional interest in the impact it's having on people. Yep. And yet... The Patriots keep winning. <laughs> yes. What so, would your assessment of, you know, if you go back to this idea, this, you know, building clarity, I think, you know, Belichick certainly builds clarity. The purpose is to win the Super Bowl. Yeah. Then build, but building competence, on the one hand, they're providing extreme direction on behaviors, but all these other things you're talking about don't seem to be present there. You know, I, people, when you talk about people like Belichick, for me, it's, it's like talking about people like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. And so when people bring, guys like Belichick uh, in a conference, it's like, I guess my, my thing is like, if you truly believe that you have the like one in a hundred million skill set where you know more about the X's and O's than anybody else in your, in your entire industry, right? And y- y- you, you can attract people who will stick with you because you are so brilliant that then go for it. So right? they stick with you in spite of your stuff. Uh, yeah. I, I, and I truly believe that. And there's another thing at play with Belichick, which is, you know, if you want to win, Go to the New England Patriots. And so I think, you know, another thing that's, that Belichick has going for him is, is, you know, and Phil Jackson had this as well, is it's like when you are a player in the National Football League, what do you want to do more than anything else? You want to win the Lombardi Trophy. And if you want to win the Lombardi Trophy, you try to go to New England because you know that gives you your biggest shot. And so I think one of the things that is a little different, I would say, frankly, between sport and business is in sport, you have a group of people that are so unbelievably motivated to do one thing, which is get to the top of the podium, bring home the Lombardi Trophy, you know, win the Grey Cup, whatever it might be, that they will go through waist-deep raw sewage right. to, to hold that trophy and in tolerate their hands brutal and tolerate coaches. because they think it's going right. to help them get, you know, right. get there. So I, I think you've got to, you know, you've got to be very careful about drawing some of those lessons, you know, from those very extreme environments in some cases. Now, you may have that type of an organization, right? I think the reason people tolerated Steve Jobs was because they thought they were changing the world. And in many ways, they were right, right? And it's like that vision was powerful enough and their desire to be part of something that was so transformational was strong enough that it was like, it's worth the downside, right? It's, right. Worth, it's worth what I have to give up. So you just got to be careful and make sure that you've got some of that special right. sauce before you kind of learn from so the behavior. effective coaches in sport are not necessarily effective coaches as we are describing them. Not always. Yeah. yeah. So the last piece of your coaching trinity, so we had clarity, we had competence, and then we had confidence. Recognition. Or recognition. So yeah, confidence is part of confidence. Yeah. So So take me into how do you build recognition? 
Yeah, so recognition is really just, you know, you're closing the virtuous cycle, which is, okay, you know, we built shared clarity around what are our expectations here? What does high performance look like? You know, I've hopefully worked with you to develop the knowledge, skills, and confidence to move towards those expectations. When you do move towards those expectations, I recognize it. I say, you know, this is what we talked about. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your contribution. And, and that's really the virtuous cycle, right? Shared expectations, build competence, and then recognize and reinforce. And again, I want to come back to my point around, you know, what's the role of a coach in an organization versus the formal recognition structures in an organization? Again, you know, recognition in organizations tends to be very well established for meeting end goals, for meeting your sales target, you know, get the trip to Maui, right? We meet our annual revenue target, you get your profit sharing check. Like, uh, you know, you're a top performer in the sales team, you get to go up on stage and get your big novelty oversized check. You know, we're very good at that stuff in most organizations. The role of a manager in a coaching capacity is really to say, okay, when that person on my team takes the first step up that massive staircase towards that ultimate end goal, that's when I need to be locking in the recognition because that's where it can still impact performance, right? If we wait until we've achieved end goals to provide recognition, the recognition can make people feel warm and fuzzy, but you've missed your opportunity to actually impact performance along the way. So that's where you say, hey, you know, we met um, two weeks ago about interrupting the client. Yeah. I wanted to tell you in this meeting, I saw a difference. Yeah. You waited for the client to finish. We heard much more about what they wanted. That results in a better brief. Well done. Is that what you're getting at? That is what I'm getting at. And, and, and you know, there's a, there's a gray area between reinforcing feedback and recognition, right? Reinforcing feedback, which is, hey, I saw what you did there. That's exactly what we talked about. Did you see the impact it had on the client? Keep doing that next time. Is both a piece of reinforcing feedback and recognition. Recognition can also take less directive approaches where it's literally just like, here's a $25 Tim's gift card, right? You've really hit it out of the park this last week. Really appreciate it. And actually, one of the most meaningful things that people, a two things I would say about recognition. First is the stuff that an organization will never notice that a manager is uniquely suited to notice is when people are just continuing to do a consistently good job when they are facing a lot of personal hardship, right? That rarely gets recognized by an organization, but as a manager, you are in a unique position to go, you know what, I know you're going through a really difficult time right now. I really appreciate that you're showing up every day and you're continuing to do your job. It, you know, like that's the kind of stuff that actually really builds commitment and engagement because you're there for people when they need you there. Um, and the, you know, the other thing I would say is that recognition is very personal. Um, one of the things that, you know, you talked about coaching myths earlier is, you know, correct in private, recognize in public. It's something that we often, you know, there are people that I know that would rather, you know, a giant sinkhole opened up and suck them into the middle of the earth than have somebody like recognize them in a very public huh. form. Like it's actually the last thing that they want uh, is to be the center of attention with like 500 of their peers looking on. So you've got to know what your people are going to perceive as recognition in order to, and it goes back to your point about knowing the person that you're coaching. Right. Well, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you've really explained, you know, this idea of clarity, of competence, and then uh, recognition. And I can see it is a virtuous cycle. When, uh, how long does it take? You know, that's maybe the final question. How long does it take? And as a, a question associated with that, when do you reduce your coaching or when do you because it's working, or when do you know when to quit because it's not? You know, I, I think this goes back to my definition of coaching, which is, to me, coaching is not a to-do that you kind of start and finish. You know, it's, it truly is a way of looking at your job as a manager. So I would say, 
in my mind, you, you know, it takes forever. <laughs> like it is a it is a continuous cycle of improvement for it, and there's really no time you kind of stop coaching. But that said, I think you know all of us as managers and as leaders are constantly making choices around. When I look across the people on my team, where am I going to invest my time and energy, you know, that is finite to really help one person in particular move up a level or play up a level from where they are right now? Uh, And I don't think there's a magic formula for that. I I will say, you know, one of the things that we see often that that we often are a little bit, frankly, ruthless around uh, uh, is we do see in a lot of organizations, people end up spending their coaching time on either the, you know, the people that are the problem children or the marginals. And problem children tend to have two things in common. They have a lot of potential. And for whatever reason, they're just not deploying that potential. And I have seen many leaders kind of you know, smash themselves to bits against those rocks trying to help people unload. And then marginal employees, we go, man, if I could just help this person get over this hump, they could be a really good contributor to the organization. What often happens is our time gets so sucked up in coaching those two groups of people we miss this tremendous opportunity to coach the 50% of the company that just does a good job every day, right? Maybe they're not the stars that are getting all the formal recognition. So what's happening with this 50? So I guess my roundabout answer to your question, which is sort of not answering your question, is I don't think your job is ever done, but I think you want to consciously be thinking about Am I spending my coaching time and attention with the people that are actually thirsty for coaching and are going to get the most bang for you know the buck out of coaching them? And I think that's a great question for anyone listening to answer today. Yeah. You know, are you spending your time with people where you and they will achieve something great? Yeah. Yeah, Dane, I want to thank you for coming on. I've learned a tremendous amount. Well, you know, thanks. Uh, certainly, as someone who manages and coaches high performers. Uh, I'm going to take, I take a lot away from what you provide uh, me and uh, I know everyone listening will too. So thank you for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me out. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Dane Jensen, CEO of Performance Coaching, and that you took away some really concrete, tangible ways that you can build a coaching relationship with the people on your team and in your world who you want to help realize their potential. If you did enjoy it, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. The next episode, which will be an interview with a top litigator at the law firm Pallier Roland named Gordon Capern, will be coming to you very soon. And I know you'll enjoy what he has to say about new ways to think about litigation. Talk to you soon.